Hello and welcome to another episode of Renaissance Botany. In this episode, we'll talk about the paper Experiencing the Past, the Archaeology of Some Renaissance Gardens. This paper I'm referencing is by Dr. Brian Dix. The goal of this paper is to understand the original methods and techniques utilized in the creation of ancient Renaissance gardens using archaeology, historic maps, and several other methods, with the goal of being able to restore or recreate similar styles of landscapes in the modern day. Renaissance gardens are typically featured as simple linked arrangements of borders and banks. However, there's a lot more to that. Many of these aspects of the Renaissance garden were aimed to impress and showcase a specific skill or idea within each garden. So the topography and landscape physiology that that landscape architect in ancient times would have used will also play a role in explaining the process behind both the creation of this landscape garden and the thought process behind it. And here are the results of that study. Most gardens within the Renaissance era were developed by landscape architects and artists of that time. Although subject to the manipulation of their patrons, the artist's personal interpretation and designs remain more or less intact from schematics to final product. Manipulation of topography to improve the garden has also been used. For instance, in the 16th century, small amounts of the forest began to be incorporated into the garden itself to be complemented with the ornamental gardens and specific buildings. Topography also acts as a constraining aspect. One commentary mentioned that the war courses at the Valley of France garden is flowing in the wrong direction. However, based on the topography, this is the only direction it could possibly flow in. The garden at Valerie, France has a local topography determined by the scope of the garden. It was designed to impress the majority of visitors who never got entry into it as well, and to the delight of those who did. As such, this specific garden was built to resemble a castle or a stage set, as well as be similar to a more exclusive garden in Kensworth Castle. Both utilized love poetry within the design and thought process behind these gardens, using scenes depicted in such poetry to create a base of which the garden should be made in the image of. The gardens of Holden by were designed by architects to induce envy as well as manipulating the topography to create the image of an idyllic countryside, even though it was fully designed and operated by an individual. The Liveden Garden was created by architects who designed the garden with a series of ascents and carefully laid out a garden path that represents a depiction of a sinner walking towards redemption. Other gardens, such as the one at Kirby Hall, was meant to be seen from the upper windows of the house, but was further altered when it became the fashion to invite people over to look at the garden. This type of garden was unique and very experimental, showcasing the creativity utilized during the Renaissance era. The garden entirely was made out of grass, with no flower beds whatsoever. Relying on the shapes that the lawns were cut into, 
to create the look and feel that the gardener was looking for. Privy Garden, however, was a completely different system, which relied almost entirely on flowers. It was recently recreated as of the writing of this paper. But back to the garden at Valerie. The garden was created to turn the entire surrounding area of a medieval castle into a expansive garden setting. This was a residence for Jacques d'Albon, as well as Marechal de Saint-Dierre, as well as a spot that King Henry II dwelt. That's spelled H-E-N-R-I, not H-E-N-R-Y. This garden was created by the artist Pierre Lescott. Modern archaeological studies were carried out between 1995 to 1998 on behalf of the French government to begin preliminary restoration of that ancient garden. The earliest known writing about this garden occurs in 1554-1558, which referred to the construction and filling up with twin pavilions at each end of a connecting gallery that divide the main pleasure ground from the other garden areas. This information was recorded by Jacques Antoinette de Coutoux for eventual publication in 1578, the first, the first volume of his book, Les Plus Excellent Specimens de France. This design also boasted a substantial dam separating the gardens from the reservoir or artificial lake upstream, where now dwells a field and a country lane. The dam, however, remains largely intact and still stands to a height of almost 5 meters and is 20 meters thick. Its construction alongside a series of supporting canals allowed the use of this new device to make inhospitable ground hospitable. Initially, this landmass was damp and marshy and frequently underwater, based on pollen and plant ruminants. But after the creation of the dam, dry conditions followed. And from there, that dam allowed for water to be carried through the main garden, indicating that that dam location was once a swamp that was repurposed to be a water source. The central water course was flanked by narrower channels with ground in between, as well as being flanked by double rows of trees that were known to be alders, which thrive in damp sites. A similar phenomenon happened with another part of the design for a planting that took place in the inner banks of the two streams. Further examination revealed that the garden and the dam were both being created at the same time. The filler material was made by dumping material at the side of a clay core, with the mass being held together by several strong outer walls. The wall facing the lake was built with a slight batter to withstand pressure, and the walls were made from sandstone to make it look shiny when looked upon from a distance. The wall itself was built upon a timber spreader plate, just above a series of wooden piles, which had been driven into the marsh proper. This created a stable footing for the wall to rest on. Access into the pleasure garden proper was made via a sentry-placed twin staircase, which is connected by the canal proper. The staircase was flanked by various ornamental plots, with trees planted at the corners. Each component was laid out with geometric patterns that are symmetrical in themselves, although no two are identical. It appears that this entryway had 16 rectangles in total. The walls of the garden enclosure originally formed a 120 meters by 110 meters rectangle, although in modern times it's been modified to provide a new entrance at the modern street level. 
Several pavilions have been found at the access points in the garden, which were, until modern days, the only access points available. These access points were ornamental alcoves that presumably once contained gates. The sides of the garden were decorated with blind arcading and the open arches of a gallery. Archaeological evidence also indicates evidence of a terrace that was about two feet high, which in later years was filled with soil. This created a need for a series of stairs to move down to the canal. A pair of ramps can be seen near the dam as well, which may have been intended to be used by waterfowl. The slope of the walls surrounding the ramps were also designed to create an illusion of greater length when viewed above the dam. There's also fish ponds that are surrounded with white sandstone, which due to its shiny texture would accentuate the look of the garden. Now onto another garden, such as the Garden of Kenworth Castle. This Renaissance garden was made in 1575 in the heart of England. The garden was created by Robert Dudley, the Earl of Leicester. The Earl of Leicester was a big fan of Greek mythology, and the entire landscape serves as a feeder to depict different narratives. He had already owned several parks, such as the Deer Park and Mirror Park, both of which were vast pleasure grounds and already used as scenes of pageantry and spectacle. Outside of the gatehouse, to make the garden complete, the gatehouse was remodeled to resemble that of an ancient Greek gatehouse. A recently built lodging was refurbished for the queen's use, and below a 12th century great tower or keep, the garden was laid out. The keep itself was partially remodeled to accommodate a picture and viewing gallery. In contrast with the public spaces within that castle, the garden provided a very private spot filled with different narratives, sights, scents, and sounds. This is a place where the Earl and his wife spend a fair amount of time, if you catch my meaning. The garden was filled with flowers, fragrant herbs, fruit trees, made to enchant and seduce the onlooker. And within the garden itself, several different statues depicting different scenes of Ovid's metamorphosis were built. Although the initial schematics and the writings remain intact, all the remains of the original garden is the foundation. Remnants of the foundation for a main fountain sculpture was dug up in the excavation, which contained small pieces of Carrara marble. The lack of firm foundations for the arbors and obelisks and other features, which the writer described, suggests that these materials were only of light construction made out of wood and planted to make them look like stone. This makes sense since the stone for making obelisks would have been almost impossible to find within 16th century England. It is plausible that this may have just been built briefly to impress the queen, to give it an illusion of extravagance beyond what the Earl was capable of making, due to the fact that the garden's construction precedes a visit from the queen. There are still three more gardens to cover, but that will be for next week's episode. Stay tuned for that. Hello and welcome to part two of the analysis of five Renaissance gardens. In this episode, we'll talk about the main ascendings and descending. This is a garden based in Holdenby in Northamptonshire. The garden was organized into split levels that were easily achieved using the landmass surrounding the area due to the fact that the building site was sloping in nature. 
the garden space is organized into terraced descents. Indeed, these inequities were viewed as a benefit, not a drawback within the garden itself, with the gentle slopes being transformed into small miniature gardens within the garden. This garden was created in 1857 by Christopher Hatton, the Queen's trusted and favorite landscape designer and Lord Chancellor from 1587 until his death four years later. He designed both the largest private house in England of that era and provided a setting for the most elaborate formal garden alongside a large deer park that took up almost one-third of the parish. Two maps that were discovered date between 1580 and 1587 respectively showcase the creation of the park and the development of the gardens around the new house. It surrounded the Moss Manor House until it's replaced. Currently, a mansion occupies that spot and is built around two courtyards that had two symmetrical facades with central towers. It was large enough to look at the garden from a very large view. The garden is called the Green, which the Lord Treasurer Burley described as a large, long, straight fairway. The garden also had a large pond next to a freshly planted spinnery alongside a long stables building that hid the nearby village from view. There was also a gatehouse that provided access to a base court which revealed a house as well as two archways that pierced the walls at either side that still survive and are dated to around 1583 when led out towards the village and a new inn to accommodate visitors and there opened up into gardens. Within the garden, there's a series of plantations separating the house from the air common fields around the north and west sides. This preceded the previous garden, which was a series of nine square flower beds. Within this area, there are several close board fences of pointed plaques divided up to section off other parts of the private area from the rest of the housing location. The garden was likewise used for profit. Various fish ponds seemed to be well stocked, and an adjacent 600-acre park contained a large rabbit warren and a managed herd of deer. These hunting locations served as a means of both adding hunting and aesthetic qualities to the park. The formal gardens within the garden, separating the parkland from the house, were divided into several areas. Thousands of tons of earth were used to create a level, roughly square platform that extended along the entire length of the south front of the house between the end pavilions, projecting up to five meters high even to this day above the sloping ground, where a series of terraces dropped down at either side, with the flat area in between being raised for walks around the edges. Each terrace was used for a garden. Based on current textual evidence, the central feature of this garden was a series of radiating lines or spokes within the gap of a southern arc indicating that it may have been an immense flat sundial. A series of terraces were found at either side of the garden dial and remain to this day as permanent earthworks and were called the rosaries, indicating that they were once probably used for growing roses. The master behind this garden was a Mr. Hatton. He employed a Catholic priest as his gardener and designer of the garden prior to the latter's arrest in 1583 for involvement in Somerville's plot to murder the Queen. The original paired arrangement of six terraces were modified in 1587 through the incorporation of a large rectangular square fish pond into the base of the western group of the terraces, as well as the addition of a bowling alley to the garden. The medieval church of Holdenby 
containing a series of recently added family memorials and dynastic tombs were also added to the garden. Prior to that, in 1580, it was once an orchard. With the addition of the pond in 1587, the prospect of making a zigzag pattern that leads to that central pond was created, and it was concluded by the end of 1587. In 1608, King James I bought Holdenby as a country estate for Prince Charles, but after the English Civil War, the property was seized by Parliament and, following that, sold to Captain Anne Baines in 1650. The house was then demolished except for a small part that was kept as a residence, and much of the surrounding garden was abandoned and left to rot, and its woodland cut down. The property returned to the Crown at the Restoration, and thereafter passed through multiple hands by either grant or purchase, which culminated in the rebuilding of the present house and garden towards the end of the 1800s. Much of the late 16th century layout remains intact as part of both the house and the garden itself, showcasing the durability of such designs of that era. The development of different roots and plantains through succession of individual garden spaces enabled a variety of narratives and imagery to be presented. Whilst spots like Holdenby were meant to be very visible, others still were designed to be more private. The final garden we will talk about is the garden of Northamptonshire Manor of Lyveden. This was the garden of a former Catholic turned non-denominational due to his view of the Catholic Church becoming corrupt, was Sir Thomas Tresham, who created a garden dedicated to Christian theology in 1594. Despite being unfinished when he died in 1605, the remains of the garden remained viable, and the details and plans he designed were finished by workmen serving under the English crown to fully create the whole experience he designed. This was a private garden meant for him and him alone, although the final design is now open to the public. The gardens occupy a long strip of ground rising for almost half a mile, approximately 530 meters, up to a hill slope that forms a valley side above the manor house. They terminate at a lodge or banqueting house that was designed in the form of a Greek cross. This house was ornamented with albums and inscriptions proclaiming devotion to Christ's passion and the Blessed Virgin Mary. It overlooked a large lawn and a series of nut and fruit trees arranged in groups of five in various arrangements. Both groups were flanked by a path that kept on going upwards, which included a broad series of terraces that contained various types of orchards containing different types of fruits such as different cultivars of pear, plum, and apple arranged in regular rows of walks running in between, meant to be interpreted as a representation of the Garden of Eden, although some speculate it may have been a representation of the Garden of Gethsemane. Within this moated orchard, an arrangement of ten concentric rings or flower beds longer visible but identifiable as crop marks in aerial photographs as of 1940, which were built to resemble the manuscript pavement and turf labyrinths of medieval Christian thought. Within each circle there is either roses or raspberries planted within, both of which are commonly associated within medieval Christian iconography with the Passion of Christ. 
other elements that are worked into that garden, as per the design of Sir Tresham, various elements of Catholic numerology and inscription were also added. The garden was not finished because of Sir Thomas's death in September 1605, during which time the property passed on to his son Francis. But this property was forfeited shortly afterwards due to the fact that Francis was involved in the gunpowder plot, which led to Francis's arrest shortly thereafter. As of the writing of this paper, well, that about covers everything. Thank you for watching. Thank you.